This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 11 to 28. It begins on page 988 in the Bibles in your rows, and it's also printed in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along as I read. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 to 28. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Morning. Uh, my name is Michael Prevatera. I'm one of the pastors here. I serve as a campus minister at Xavier University. Uh, glad to be with you all this morning. We are finishing up our series through the book of 1 Thessalonians today. And over the last few weeks, we have been wrestling with the question of what does it look like to live today in light of tomorrow? You see the subtitle up there. Uh, right there. Um, and this matters because Christianity is not just a philosophy for how to be a nice person or how to have your best life. Uh, at the very heart of Christianity is the claim that God has done something in time and space and history and will again do something in the future. And because of that, our lives and our lives together must be shaped by these events, past and future. And at the center of these claims is a community that has gathered for 2,000 years in different times, in different places, in different countries, different cultures, uh, and we call this community the church. That's why you're here today. Uh, and this, this, the church is the, the ecclesia, is the word in Greek. Uh, it just means those who have been called out to be gods, the gathering of God's people. And the church is the embodiment of, of Christianity in every time and place. In, for example, if you want to know what the church is, you have to look at specific local churches rather than just this big idea of church in general. Uh, and if the church is missing the mark or failing to live into its mission or, or just not being great, um, trust in the message of Jesus can actually be questioned by the broader society. 
And so in our passage today, Paul is, uh, it looks like kind of just a bunch of random things that he, for, he forgot to add in his letter and just kind of threw on the end of his letter. But actually, he is addressing specifically church life together. So what is this church thing all about? Why do we gather? Do we actually need this? Can't I just do this God thing on my own, in my own the privacy of my own home, whatever? And those may be some questions that rattle through your brain as you force yourself out of bed on Sunday morning. Because you could stay home, you can go get some brunch, you know, sleep in, whatever it might be. Um, and the reality is, you're not alone. Uh, if you look at this chart, I have some charts up here. Uh, this is uh, from a recent Gallup poll survey about trust in institutions. Uh, you probably cannot see those numbers if you're anywhere back there. Um, but the circled red in the bottom corner of the screen uh, is 2004. Uh, in 2004, 53% of people said that they trusted the church a lot, quite a lot, or a great deal or quite a lot. 20 years-ish later, 19 years, I'm bad at math, uh, 2023, uh, we see the top circle, 32%. So in about 20 years, it dropped 20%. Trust in the church. That's pretty significant. It's a pretty significant drop in trust. Um, and that may be surprising to you. What's actually more surprising is that the church is still trusted more than a lot of other institutions. Um, you can see this chart. We have uh, 32% is actually pretty darn good compared to Congress at 8%. Uh, <laughs> TV news at 14%. Newspapers, 18%, uh, large tech companies, 26 like the presidency, 26 We're doing pretty good, comparably. Um, it's still not great. 32% is, there's, that means there's 70% people or so that do not trust us. Um, so it's actually surprising, that's surprising. But the reality that people don't trust the church is not surprising because uh, in the last few decades, church failures have been on display in a big way, in a lot of ways, whether it's church leaders that have fallen into abuse scandals or corruption or hypocrisy or even just church history, if you look at it, is, is kind of a spotted record of great things and then some e really evil things like a history of complicity and, and slavery and oppression. Um, and so it's not surprising that people have turned away from the church. And you probably all know somebody in the, in the past decade or so, whether that be a family member or a friend or a classmate or even just someone who's famous who has deconstructed their faith. It's kind of a popular term out there. Um, and in a lot of these stories, it often seems like one of the reasons people leave the faith or deconstruct their faith is because of church culture and history and hypocrisy is, is a big part of it, right? Um, so the question needs to be is, is the church sometimes an ugly institution because that's just kind of what it is? Or is there a better vision for being the church? Well, in today's passage, as I mentioned, Paul finishes his letter to the Thessalonians with some instructions on how to do church well. In other words, he lays out a vision for what the church ought to and can be and should be like. And so we're going to take a look at the three things that Paul discusses in this section. Um, first is, is the church structure itself, life together, and then our worship. So those are the three big things we'll be looking at. Um, let's start with the first one, church structure. Now, the fancy word for this is ecclesiology, but I'm not, I'm not a really fancy guy, uh, so we're going to call it church structure. But at the heart of Christian community is this structure 
that is meant to hold everything together. It's the skeleton upon which uh, the the church fleshes out, the life of the church fleshes out the body. Um, And this structure in verses 12 to 13, Paul is discussing specifically those who lead the church and the community's response to them. Now, in the New Testament, those who lead the church are called in Greek presbyters or presbyterioi, uh, which is, if, if you didn't know, this is a Presbyterian church. Um, I know we don't always advertise that, but um, this word, presbyter, in Greek, is where we get our name Presbyterian, in case you're wondering, what does that mean? It has to do with church structure. Uh, And so Presbyterians, uh, or elders, is another way of saying this, pastors or elders. Uh, And they are those who are over the community uh, in the Lord, as Paul says, and work on behalf of the church um, for its good, pastors and elders. Elsewhere in the scriptures, Paul will make clear that pastors and elders are men who labor and have authority in the church. But this office of pastor or elder is not an office of, like, just comfort and praise, right? To be a pastor isn't a calling to laziness or relaxation, um, even though sometimes it may look like it, as I'm having, like, three lunch meetings in a day or whatever. Um, It's a calling to hard work. To work hard. The word that in Greek that Paul uses for labor um, is this word kapaio, and it means to tire oneself out, to toil, to struggle, to do hard manual labor. Uh, the theologian Pastor John Stock said this word conjures up pictures of rippling muscles and sweat. That's the kind of work pastors are called to do in the church. And so it's uh, that picture. Of pastors, I want you to hold in your mind of us being totally, you know, jacked and swole. And I want you to, to, to think about when you think about what we do all day, I want you to think about that rippling muscle and sweat. Think about all those uh, preacher curls I was busting out as I lifted commentaries and prayer squats or whatever. Um, doing a bunch of push ups at our elders' meetings, you know, getting jacked for Jesus. Um, I, I am totally fine with you having that picture in your head as you think about what do pastors and elders do. Um, and you can blame John Stott for that, not me, because that that's all inspired by his commentary. Uh, but seriously, though, pastors aren't meant to be kings. Elders aren't meant to be worshipped. And too often, when church goes wrong, or we read about churches going wrong, one of the factors is that pastors are too busy chasing honor and celebrity instead of working hard at serving God's people. Yes, pastors and elders are given authority in Christ's church, but it's an authority that's a calling to service, not an authority that's a calling to being held uh, and worshipped, right? And the Lord Jesus said about this authority in the church, he said in Matthew chapter 23, he said, the greatest among you shall be a servant. Those who have authority shall be a servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In reality, pastors and elders, the leadership of the church, are just beggars telling other beggars where they can find the bread. But this authority in the church has a purpose in Paul's mind. Right? Pastors and elders are given authority in the church not to lord it over God's people, but to care and protect God's people, like a father caring for their children, or a shepherd, to use a more biblical example, caring for sheep. That's hard work. That's, that's what leadership and authority in the church is supposed to look like. To lead, then, is to serve. 
Pastors and elders have a call to admonish, Paul says, uh, and he often pairs this call to admonish with teaching, so admonish and teach, um, but our calling is to teach and admonish the people of God in order to protect and care for you all. And we are limited in what we can admonish and teach according to what the scriptures say, right? This, this calling to have authority and to admonish and teach is, as Paul says, in the Lord. And it's mainly limited to things in the Lord. So, for example, I can't tell you how to file your taxes, nor do you want me giving you tax advice, um, or how you should vote, or what color to paint your walls. I can give you my thoughts on those things, um, or refer you to passages of scripture that might be relevant to those questions, but my authority is in the Lord and not in other areas. For example, if I get pulled over for a speeding ticket, I can't say to the officer, officer, I'm a pastor, uh, you can't give me that ticket. Um, I should get off with a warning, can't do that. I can't help him, I mean, I could try, uh, but I can't do that. I can't help him, though, grow in his faith and study the scriptures and, and, and help to think through what he should believe about Christ. And one of the problems in, in churches is that when the church goes sideways, one of the things that often happens is when pastors and leaders step out of this authority in the Lord and try to claim authority over places that God has not given us authority. Um, pastoral authority is mainly limited to things that pertain to life as a Christian and what God's word has to say about how you use your time or what your marriage ought to look like or, or wisdom in parenting or things that lead to you growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it, the goal is your, for your good and your growth and godliness. So all that said, if, if you or your family is struggling, please let the pastors and elders know here. Um, we have five pastors here. We have, I don't know how many elders we currently have in session. We have a lot. Um, we all want to, we all care for you. We all love you. Um, we want to know what's going on. We have on the, on the Church Center app, there's a, a pastoral care form that you can fill out uh, and let us know what's going on. And that's whether we meet with you or pray for you, whatever that might be. Uh, we also have an elder after every worship service standing over here uh, who is, wants to pray for you and pray for your families and are glad to do that. So please take advantage of that. We, we, we want to help you and your family thrive in Christ. That's our goal as God has called us to lead the church. Our goal is love, not power not recognition in that sense. And this then, that Paul, is, this is why he then addresses his remarks to all the church who's hearing this letter read. Like he, he goes to talk to those in the church community. He says, in light of this, in light of the fact that you have leaders and this is their calling, um, defer to them. Hear their counsel. Respect and highly esteem them in love is Paul's language. And in fact, when you become a member in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, you take vows to do just that. One of the vows, and we'll see this in a few weeks, we'll be doing some new member um, vows up front here. But the last vow is, that you hopefully answer yes to, is do you submit to the government and discipline of the church, the discipleship of the church, in other words, and promise to further its purity and peace? And again, this is not a call to flatter and worship the leadership of the church, but to be willing to defer to leaders, to hold them in high regard, to trust them when it comes to things in the Lord. The word that Paul uses for respect here isn't, again, this like hold, put people on a pedestal, hold them high. It actually just means to know or to acknowledge. Uh, Paul's not telling the church to think its leadership is awesome, but just to acknowledge that they're leaders and be willing 
to hear their counsel. And notice that Paul roots this respect and, and holding in high regard, not in, in how the pastors look or how snazzily they dress or how nice their hair is, even though Zach Meyer has a beautiful head of hair. Um, he's our youth pastor, if you don't know. He's gorgeous, blonde hair. Uh, so don't, don't look at your pastors for that. Look at their hard work. Hold them in high regard because of their hard work. Hold a pastor in high regard because he shows up at the hospital when you're sick. Hold leaders in high regard because they're praying for you. Hold the leadership of the church in high regard because they are working to teach and explain God's inspired word to you for your good, for your growth in holiness and godliness. Right? And this doesn't, doesn't mean that you excuse leadership when leadership goes wrong or if leaders are sinning or preaching things to, that are contrary to God's word. That's not what Paul's saying here. Uh, and in fact, we have checks and balances in this denomination, uh, and the Bible calls us to seek the church's purity. Um, one of the good things about the way we organize our churches uh, is that we, this ch- local churches in our denomination are led by groups of people, right? groups of elected elders. Uh, and one of the reasons is because there's safety in numbers. Right? The old adage is that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's true. And so from the beginning in the New Testament church, you see this in the book of Acts, uh, and you, you see this throughout church history, but especially now today in our churches, we still do this. The church is overseen by groups of elders, groups of people, men who work together, elders and deacons, and hold each other accountable to be about Christ's work in the world. Too often when Christian community goes wrong, it's because there's a lack of accountability and too much power in the hands of one person. And the goal of all of this, the reason why Paul is laying all this out for the Thessalonians is not just so that they have proper uh, you know, church ecclesiology or whatever, but the goal is peace. If you look at verse 13, he says, be at peace among yourselves. Leadership and lay people ought to be seeking peace in the church. And in fact, a church that's not full of controversy is a blessing. It's, it's good if your church is kind of boring. Like, if there's not a whole lot of controversy happening amongst people, like, people generally like each other and get along. That's great. That's a really good thing. Um, so being at peace is a blessing from God. So Paul lays out the structure, the skeleton of what the church ought to be like. And then he talks about, in verses 14 to 15, what the peaceful church actually commits itself to. And uh, one of the things we say here regularly, and you've probably heard this if you've been around for any length of time, uh, we often say that the church is meant to be a family. And you can see that right here in this passage, because five times Paul calls Christians in Thessalonica brothers, which also includes the women, guys. You could also translate that brothers and sisters, if you would. Uh, And they are so much a family that it's not weird for Paul to tell them, greet the brothers with a holy kiss. Right, that's what family does. Maybe not your family. Some families, uh, hugs and kisses are normal and good in a family. Uh, now, don't do that at the passing of peace. Like, that's, I mean, you, there's some cultural differences between us and the Thessalonica. That might be interpreted differently today. Um, but Paul is saying, greet each other like family and not like strangers or acquaintances. Because you are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And yes, sometimes your family will drive you crazy. Sometimes they will make you mad. Sometimes they will hurt you. But if you can be reconciled with your family and forgive one another, that's better in the long run. 
Right? I, I don't want to minimize that churches have hurt people badly. I'm, I'm sure some of you have stories of hurt, church hurt in the past. And those hurts should be condemned. But sometimes, on the other hand, family's messy, and we need to be willing to forgive and seek reconciliation if possible. Because from the beginning of creation, God has been in the business of building a people, a community for himself. And Christianity is a corporate thing. It's not meant to be done individually. It's a, it's a communal thing and not just a personal, private faith value. It's meant to be done together. In fact, you can't do it by yourself. So this community is a family, but it's also a community that is meant to help one another. Right, this brings us to the second thing Paul lays out for the church. Um, in verses 14 to 15, he gives some exhortations. Uh, he, and again, we could, I could do a whole sermon on these. Um, we're not, we're kind of just going to run through them. And also the next instructions he gives, well, because each one of these could be their own sermon. But he says in verses 14 to 15, admonish the idle, right? It's, that's those who refuse to work, who are being busybodies, who are gossiping. Uh, encourage the faint-hearted. Uh, and, and that's the anxious, the depressed, the struggling and help and be patient with the weak. And those are those who are in the community struggling with sin. And lastly, Paul says, don't seek to get revenge on each other when you're hurt. Right? Be about the business of doing good for one another in the church. And he paints this picture of a church community where people in the church, a people group, where everyone is seeking to take care of their own families, the hurting are encouraged and helped, and everyone is seeking each other's good. That's what the church is meant to look like. That's what the community of the church is meant to be. And you might say, well, that's not been my experience of Christians or the church. And that's a possibility because uh, the Bible is, is full of instances of really messed up church communi communities. All you got to do is read 1 Corinthians. Uh, it could be a lot worse. Uh, Galatians, one of the letters to the churches in Revelation. Um, there's a lot of messed up churches in history and even in the Bible itself. And Paul writes some letters to some of them. But... That's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, when this happens, the problem is not the church itself or the institution of the church or Christianity. It's people. Uh, because when the Christian community fails to live up to the ideals of what the Bible lays out, it's because uh, the church is filled with sinners. Uh, the problem is that this institution is filled with broken and hurting people who too often live out of that hurt and brokenness and sin against one another instead of living into the vision of the church that's painted in the New Testament. So in other words, you shouldn't be surprised when there's sinners in the church. That's all God has to work with, number one. We're all in that boat. Uh, and the church, it's been said that the church is meant to be a hospital for the sick, for sinners, and not a museum for perfect saints. So we shouldn't be surprised when we experience that. But also, we should know that it's not the way it's supposed to be. So if you've had negative experiences in the church, don't give up on the church. Don't give up on Christian community. Either seek reconciliation and restoration with those who've hurt you, or, if, if you, worst case scenario, if you have to find a different church community, uh, find one, and find one that's trying to live out a picture of the church in the scriptures. Here at New City, we are far from perfect. Uh, you, just, you just don't know us very well. Uh, you don't know me very well. Uh, we try to live into these things, but we don't do it perfectly. And I had a professor in seminary who once told us in class, he said, if you find a perfect church, don't go to it because you'll screw it up. <laughs> Which is probably true. But the reality is, um, this is also true of every institution. 
on planet Earth. I mean, you look, I saw that, we showed that chart. There's a lot of bad institutions out there. But the difference between the church and Congress, for example, is that we have a vision of how it should be and not just rules and policies for how we do things when we get together. Right? There's a vision that is laid out in the New Testament of what this community ought to look like and what we ought to be striving for, and Paul lays it out here. And I'm sure, again, even in this room, there have been folks who've been hurt or wounded by others in this community, even if it was minor, but our prayer is that we are living into being a family where everyone is taken care of, the hurting our help, and the good of all is sought. And when we don't do that, we need to repent and seek those things. But how does a community like this get formed, you might ask? How is it sustained? How does it grow? Well, one of the ways that Paul lays out uh, that this community is formed is it, that is our life together sustained by worship together. Right? After painting this picture of what the church ought to be, Paul turns to some more spiritual instructions. And our temptation is often when we read these to, to read them as uh, ideas for your own private spiritual life, like rejoice always, pray without ceasing, uh, give thanks in all circumstances. Right? That's, we were thinking, oh, I need to do that personally. But in the original languages, Paul writes this, it's all in the second person plural. So he's saying, y'all, that's, that's my y'all, I'm not from the South, but that's all I got. Um, he says, y'all need to rejoice always. You all pray without ceasing. You guys give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He's talking to the community. And so a lot of commentators have pointed out that these are probably instructions for worship and not just individual prayer practices. And at the very least, uh, even if it's not specifically that, their attitude to the church community should be practicing that lead to peaceful community. And one of the natural outlets for these things, rejoicing in the Lord, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, is Sunday morning corporate worship. And again, entire sermons could be preached in each one of these instructions, but we don't have time to get into that, so I'm just going to skim them quickly. Uh, but Paul desires that the Thessalonian worship would be characterized by these things. He says, rejoicing in the Lord, and that doesn't mean being happy all the time, but finding joy in what God has done or is doing. He calls them to pray and intercede continuously, to be praying for God's work in the world, to be praying for others in the church community, to give thanks in all circumstances, trusting that God will work even the hard things for good, being led by the Spirit of, of God, by the Word of God, listening to the Spirit in the Word preached and proclaimed, pursuing what's good and avoiding evil. And an environment of worship like this fuels the beautiful community that Paul is calling the Thessalonians to. So they need that worship to sustain their life together. But ultimately, this, this Christian community that Paul is painting a picture of must be rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It must be rooted in the hope of Jesus Christ. Because in, in Thessalonians verse 23, or, I mean chapter 5, verse 23, he gives them a blessing. He says, now may the God of peace, we're going to sing this in a moment here toward the end of our worship, but may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. All right, Paul ends his letter to the Thessalonians the same way he started, by reminding them 
of the rationale and the, the ground and the foundation for their life together, and that is the good news of Jesus Christ, the one to whom they turn to from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who raised him from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Those are Paul's words at the beginning of this letter. The church isn't a community where we come to find self-improvement or people like us. We are gathered by the reality that we are desperately in need of healing and grace. We're desperately in need of someone to save us from ourselves. No matter our backgrounds, whether it's our DNA or our culture or our current standing, whether it's your political views or uh, your, the amount of money in your bank account or your culture, whatever that might be, we're here because we need God. We're here because we recognize that apart from Jesus Christ, we have no hope. We're here because we believe the claims that 2,000 years ago, Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world, that he was raised on the third day, and that he will come again to make all things new. We are here because Christ is our King. And so we seek to live these things out, these instructions that Paul gives, because we're meant to be a sneak preview or a movie trailer of the kingdom of peace that God will bring in the future. Right? We, we, we live these things out because of what Christ has done for us and what he's going to do in the future. In other words, we're practicing for a life with God. And in a society where trust in institutions is just down overall and we are polarized and tribalized, this vision that the Bible lays out of a diverse community that is centered around the grace of Jesus Christ, this community of love is a beacon of light in a world of darkness. And we will not always get it right. But when we don't get it right, we should, as a church, repent and seek to grow in the things that God calls us to. But if a church community is to embody the things we read about this morning, it must have this good news at its heart that God welcomes and loves sinners, that God is in the business of bringing healing into the world, that God has called us and given us a purpose and a hope for the future, and that all that we long for in church community is dependent upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our love and life together must flow from that. John the Apostle writes in his first letter, he says, By this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us, And so, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, well, I confess that so often um, we just fail to live in our calling. I fail to live in my calling. Uh, This church is not always what you want it to be. Lord, that too often we let sin and and division get in our way, and we forget that you called us by the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, to be yours, to be a a priesthood of all believers, holy nation, a holy holy group of people for the good of the world and light and darkness. Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would make us more and more to live into these things, to be willing to be reconciled to one another, to forgive one another, to worship you in all of life. Help us, Lord. We need your spirit to help us. We need you to show us more and more the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and fuel things that you're calling us to through that. Please do these things among us, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.